Just welcome everyone today at all of our locations and all the congregations around the uh, capital region. We're so glad that you're here today. You know, I kind of feel for these disciples who were following Jesus because they had gone from fear to fear to fear in a matter of moments. First of all, a furious storm came upon the Sea of Galilee and they were so scared that the boat was going to sink and, and they were going to, to drown. But then moments later, when they cried out to Jesus, he stood up and said, you know, peace be still. And this ferocious storm w- was totally calmed. And now they were even more afraid because they said, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. But then some moments later, when they got to the other side of the lake, Jesus had directed them to this region of the Gerasenes, an area known as Gadara. And when they got out of the boat, this rocky region had a number of caves. And there was a, a man who lived there who was really out of control. Once a posse of men from the local town had tried to bind him with chains, but he had burst the chains. And now he was living there, and people were afraid. And it was said, you should never go there, especially at night. But of course, none of this intimidated Jesus. And that's precisely where he landed. I can imagine the disciples tiptoeing nervously behind Jesus as they made their way along because they knew the huge reputation for terror this man had as he frightened and terrorized all the people of the region. Suddenly, this wild character, frothing like a rabid animal, comes racing out of the tombs and comes toward them. And at the top of his lungs, he says, Jesus... Son of the Most High, what do, you ha- what do you want with me? And Jesus says in verse 30, what is your name? I love that. Jesus, so unafraid, so unintimidated, so personable, even with this bizarre situation. And the man answered, legion. Now, I wish we knew if that meant he literally had 6,000 or more demons inhabiting him because a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. Or if it was just uh, the name he had taken because the Bible says many demons had gone into him. The Living Bible paraphrases that the demons had taken control of him. So here's this pitiful man who has been controlled and enslaved by these evil forces beyond his control. But Jesus did something. He commanded the demons to come out of him. Listen to this strange paragraph starting in Luke 8, verse 32. It says, A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, I don't know if this messes with your worldview. And for many people in the Western world today 
who've kind of bought into a more secular version, non-spiritual version of the world. They just don't believe in demons anymore. Let me tell you, folks, demons are real. They're just as real as they ever were. The chances are, chances are, you will never be literally possessed by demons. But I want to tell you this. The first thing I would want you to see from this passage today is that sin has the potential to enslave us in all kinds of ways. And many people are driven by addictions into destructive behavior. Gary Collins, the respected Christian counselor, defines addiction as any thinking or behavior that is habitual, repetitious, and difficult or impossible to control. It begins with some perceived pleasure, but it ends up with a lot of pain. It's short-term pleasure with long-term pain. One thing all addictions have in common is they tend to dominate life as they take priority over everything else. 2 Peter 2, 19 reads, They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And so whoever you are today, as we study this passage together, I want you to know that this bizarre story in Luke 8 is a graphic depiction of the potential that evil has to enslave every one of us, where we're talk, whether we're talking about demons specifically or evil in general. Think about it. At one point in this man's life, he had been an innocent child with hope in his eyes, with a promising future. But at some point, it apparently opened himself up to Satan and he became a prisoner to evil. Now let's spend just a few minutes here. What are some of the things to which we become addicted or enslaved today? Let me just quickly mention some of the more common ones. And by the way, there are dozens and dozens more, I'm sure. But some of the most common things that enslave people today, and it becomes so tragic, is one is alcohol. During my college years, three friends and I went on one of these wild trips one weekend that a lot of college students tend to do. We had lots of energy and a weekend, I think it was a long weekend, and uh, we took off from East Tennessee and drove to Chicago, Illinois. We wanted to go and spend a a couple of nights at uh, Jesus People USA. It's sort of a commune in Chicago, sort of a cross between a church and a rescue mission and a soup kitchen all rolled into one. They did a lot of great work. And one of the things we did while we were there, we were all, the four of us were committed Christians. We were all preparing for Christian leadership and ministry. And we went out on the streets with others at Jesus People, and we shared the gospel. And I'll never forget one of the conversations. These kind of conversations really tend to mark you. I talked to one man who was utterly disheveled, filthy, living obviously out on the streets. And he pointed to a high-rise complex across the street. And he said, I used to have an office in the penthouse of that building right there. I was the head of the corporation. Later, by the way, I checked with members of 
the staff and they said it was indeed true. They knew this man. They knew his story. But he had left his family, left his job, and he now lived virtually like an animal, living in the alleyways, eating out of garbage cans, sleeping in the parks and the alleys, because what some people used to call demon rum had taken control of his life. And he literally lived now to get his next drink. Proverbs 20 reads, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Now, if you've carefully read the Bible, you know the Bible does not forbid drinking. What it does strongly forbid is drunkenness. And it also gives repeated warnings about the addictive power of alcohol. Consider this passage in Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Answer, those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? That's obviously describing a person who is addicted And if you have any wonder if maybe alcohol is getting its claws in you, I would ask you to consider a number of questions. First of all, are you drinking more today than you did a year ago? Do you hide your drinking from those close to you? Because addiction requires denial and secrecy in order to keep going. Do you get irritated with those who ask you how much you've had or maybe suggest you might be drinking too much? Can you totally quit for a week without becoming irritated or depressed? And are you willing to prove it? And are you actually irritated right now that I'm even talking about this? It might be an indication that you've got a little problem developing. Another common addiction is food. Proverbs 23 reads, Do not joys those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat for drunkards and gluttons. Notice how it combines these two addictive behaviors. Drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. I find it interesting that while the church has often historically said a lot about drunkenness, we've not said much about gluttony and yet the same Word of caution is given for each. Gluttony is a more respectable addiction, I think, but it can enslave you just the same. Someone defined gluttony as someone who thinks a balanced diet is a Big Mac in each hand. I heard of a guy who a number of years ago, true story, he was 150 pounds overweight. He was also an alcoholic. So his life was just out of control in a number of ways, and he decided that he would tackle the alcoholism first. And by God's grace, he was victorious. He he quit drinking. But as he shared his story, he said, 
the overeating was a harder problem for me. He said, with the drinking, it was actually fairly easy. I just put the plug in the jug, so to speak, and just put it away. But with eating, you have to eat in moderation. You've got to eat to live. And you have to walk that dog three times a day. It's a lot more difficult, and I think he's right. Proverbs 23 reads, And put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. So whether it's bulimia, anorexia, gluttony, compulsive behavior toward food is a growing problem in our culture. And I would just suggest to you that gluttony is a spiritual problem. And it has a spiritual solution. If we just followed this simple guideline, eat good food, nutritious food, until you're satisfied, and then stop. If we just followed that, with the exception of severe glandular problems, few few of us would, would be overweight. Third, some are addicted to drugs. Now, I don't need to rehash for you all the dangers of cocaine and the growing heroin problem here in the capital region. All of that has been well documented. And if you're like me, you know a number of people whose lives have been wrecked by these illegal drugs. We know they can enslave. But you know what? Many Christians, I know, have become dependent on other drugs to get us through the day. This past Wednesday, I had a little operation on my left knee. Uh, I had a meniscus tear there in my left knee, and so I went in for this outpatient operation. And, and for the anesthesia, they used an epidural to block the pain in the lower half of my body. But I had never had this particular drug before. To get you ready for the epidural, they give you this drug, and those of you in the medical world know exactly what I mean. It's a form, it's Versid. I want to be a marketing agent for Versid. I want to tell you right now, because when they put that drug into the IV, I mean, all was right with the world. You know what I'm saying? I just smiled at the nurse. I was a cooperative patient. I loved everybody. It was amazing. I want to go market that stuff. I mean, Versed is unbelievable. You feel euphoric. Now, I realize that many of you are on prescription drugs that actually assist your health, and they're important for your well-being. God bless you. But if you are sneaking diet pills, sleeping pills, pain pills, antidepressants every day, on and on, be alert to the addiction that's gripping your life. Many professional athletes have admitted they almost wrecked their career because of addiction to painkillers. You get an injury, you take painkillers to numb the pain. Brett Favre, years ago, acknowledged he almost wrecked his Hall of Fame career because of his addiction to painkillers. He said, I was enslaved to them. They were running and wrecking my life. The Bible says to Christians, do you not know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? And then Paul ends that section by saying, therefore honor God with your body. Folks, if we're serious about following Christ, we need to take care of this one and only body, this temple that God has given us. 
Fourth, we're also hearing a lot today about the dangers of sexual addictions. I looked online this week at some of the latest statistics. One organization called Covenant Eyes currently reports, latest statistics, 68% of young men and 18% of young women view sexually explicit websites at least once per week. That's astounding. Researchers from Stanford and Duquesne universities concluded that up to 70% of the e-porn traffic occurs during work hours between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. People are accessing it during work hours. And this rise of cyber sex addiction is like spiritual crack cocaine and it is wrecking marriages. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread, the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Please understand, if you're toying with this, you're playing with fire, you will, you will get burned. Fifth, I think gambling has incredible addictive potential. Pathological gambling is growing at an alarming rate. The online gambling market worldwide, catch this, has grown from $7.4 billion in revenue in 2002 to a staggering $41.4 billion annually today. It increases every single year. Now, obviously, computers have made gambling much more accessible and easy. And through the years as a pastor, I've counseled with numbers of families within Grace Fellowship where the family was being wrecked because of one family member's addiction. One young father with whom I spoke and members of his family had sunk the family in over $70,000 of debt that he had lost gambling and bankrupted the family. It led to divorce. It led to a disruption of that family and a lot of pain. Let me say to you, let me say to you, I know, I know it's a good time probably to go to some casino. We've got another one coming in the area. Schenectady and the surrounding area is going to have a lot more easy access to gambling. But if you get involved in OTB and the racetrack and Turning Stone in Verona, and if you go to Foxwood, if you speculate on cattle futures and stock options, please understand there's a potential for powerful addiction. It is insidious. It is destructive. And if you sat across the desk from some of the people that I've sat with whose lives were destroyed... You might just think twice before you pull that lever. 1 Timothy 6 says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he says to the young Christian woman or man, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Here's the bottom line. Just about any sin has certain addictive power. George Lefkoe, former commissioner at the Los Angeles Regional Planning Commission, said, my first Christmas in the job as commissioner, I received a honey-baked ham from Forest Lawn Cemetery. I didn't think that was ethical to receive it, so I tried to take it back. But nobody at Forest Lawn seemed authorized to take it back. No politician had ever tried to return it before, apparently. So the second Christmas, I received another ham, and I gave it to a worthy charity. The next year, some worthy friends were having a party, so I gave it to them. The next year, I had a party, and we enjoyed the ham. In the fifth year, about the 10th of December, I began wondering, where's my ham? And then he adds, I don't think it's wise to stay in public office very long. It can be so easily abused. Every kind of sin is so insidious, it begins with this seemingly harmless thread, but soon can become a straitjacket of enslavement. But secondly today, I want you to see that while sin can enslave, Jesus has the power to liberate. I'm so impressed, as always, by Jesus. When this demon-possessed man came rushing at him, he didn't chastise him, he didn't rebuke him, nor did he banish him away. Instead, he received him. He asked him questions. He had a conversation. And Jesus was about to demonstrate that just as he could calm a tumultuous sea, he could calm a tormented soul. Verse 35 reads, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What a transformation. He'd been possessed by a myriad of demons, and now he's controlled by Jesus Christ. He'd been out of control. Now he's under control. He'd been running around naked, now he's clothed. He'd been out of his mind, now he's in his right mind. He'd been alienated from people and all alone, and now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, surrounded by caring people. His life was a mess, and now he's peaceful. And I simply want to say to you, listening to me right now, whatever your addiction, whatever your enslavement, Whatever has you in its claws, hear me, hear me, hear me. Jesus Christ, the reigning and risen Lord, has the power to free you and liberate you from that addiction. All you got to do is call on him. He can set you free. I've seen it over and over and over again. Sitting all around you today are stories of people where Jesus has done that. That's why they're here. Because he's freed them from the enslavement of sin. So as we move down home stretch today in these final minutes, I want you to consider some steps to liberation. 
And I believe these are kind of like a ladder where you start at the bottom and then you move along the steps of the ladder to full freedom in Christ. So let me suggest them to you. And I believe that every one of these is important. First of all, admit the problem. You cannot overcome this problem by sheer willpower. Don't blame other people. Don't claim to be a victim. Openly admit, I'm involved in something of my own choice. It's become out of control. I feel powerless. And it's begun to destroy my life. I need help. It all begins right there. Denial will keep you in bondage for the rest of your life. Admit, there's a problem here. There's no disgrace in that. It's the most honorable thing you could possibly do is to just get honest and open. Second, if you have not already done so, give your life completely to Jesus Christ. Here's why I say that. Through the years, I've become very wary of dealing with people, whether we're talking literal demons or whether we're talking the power of evil, if that person does not have a spiritual commitment to Christ. Here's why. Jesus told a story about a house where demon, a demon had been cast out and, and it was left empty. There was a vacuum left there. And Jesus said, seven more demons came worse than the other seven more came and inhabited that house your life cannot become a vacuum you can't just stop your addictive behavior and kind of leave your life empty you got to fill it fill it with god the holy spirit fill it with the love of god fill it with activity to bless others and so when you put your Christ your faith in Christ, you confess him as your Lord and Savior, you trust in what he did for you at the cross, he comes into your life, he forgives all your sins, he adopts you into his family, and here's the deal, he comes in by his spirit and takes up habitation, and it begins to change you from the inside out. I want to introduce you today, we're going to get right back to this story and this ladder but I want to introduce you to one final partner. These aren't all of our partners, but each week we've been introducing you to a new one. Keith Davey of New Hope Ministries. Recently, Bill Minchin of our staff interviewed Keith, and I want us to listen together to this video. Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, we're standing here on the corner of Myrtle Ave and Dove Street, literally in the heart of inner city Albany. We're also standing right outside one of the four buildings that God has allowed New Hope to acquire for ministry purposes. But can you tell us a little bit about how New Hope Ministries got started? My wife and I were called to plant churches, and I didn't know what that meant. God had just put on my heart while I was in Bible school, I want you to plant churches. And as we were praying and seeking after the Lord, just Albany kept coming on our heart, kept coming on our heart. And he opened the door for us to come back to this city. My wife is from this area. And we came to Albany, and our heart was to plant a church. So on November 6th, uh, 2000, 
we acquired a shared storefront. It was actually a burned-out storefront we were sharing with another church. Didn't have a bathroom at all, and they allowed us to use the, serv- the, the facility Monday night. So we began by standing on the street corner outside of an AANA meeting, inviting people in to hear about the love of Christ on Monday night. And so that's how we just began starting preaching on the streets, evangelizing, talking to everybody that walked by on, at 113 Central Avenue. So we did that for about a year, year and a half, and there were some exciting times. You never knew who was going to come in or what was going to be said. People came in. They would praise the Lord. I just won the lottery ticket. They'd come in in the middle of service, ask us for bus fares. So you had to be ready for anything and just to meet people's needs right where they are. So you've seen a lot in the last few years. What a great start. But today, as I understand it, New Hope Ministries is both a growing local church. Uh, In fact, you have two campuses here in Albany and a third location planned for this fall. But you are also a multifaceted inner city ministry that you have branded Rebuilding the City. And recently you shared the vision for rebranding the city in a brief video. Let's take a look at that now. You're the king of these people. You're the lord of this nation. I'm Pastor Keith Davey from New Hope Ministries in Albany, New York. And we founded Rebuilding the City Foundation. And it's our heart to see Albany rebuilt from the inside out, one life at a time. God put in my heart in 2002 to build a community center, to have transitional homes for men or women. And over the years, he's developed that. And what that has become is called Rebuilding the City. And Rebuilding the City really started to to burn in my heart and take initiative when in June of 2012, I sat at the Albany High graduation. And earlier that week, the article came out in the Times Union. The article declared that 50% of Albany High students do not graduate. And right then, I just felt my heart burden. I felt my heart break that we have to do more. And Rebuilding the City is what more looks like. Rebuilding the City Foundation is a multi-church approach, is a kingdom ministry where churches in, in the inner city and in the suburbs work together to see what God would do in the most ungodly city in America. Rebuilding the city has multifacets. You could picture maybe a table with six legs holding it up. One is hope for women, a residential home for women to be a safety net to catch a step on solid ground, a shelter in the storm of their life. We've established that in 2007. We've opened up Gateway. It's a residential trade school for men, focusing for men ages 17 to 25, to give young men an opportunity to learn a trade instead of sling drugs, to not be a statistic, to not go in what they've seen before them, but to teach them what a hard day's work is and what an honest wage is. Another aspect of of Rebuilding the Cities are Meals for Kids, where we desire to feed kids a healthy dinner five nights a week. Kids from ages 4 to 19 can come in and receive a meal, receive a dinner, feel loved, be appreciated, and get what they need. What we have in the future is precious in His sight. Ultimate potential downtown Albany. It's right between Lincoln Park, between Washington Park, between three schools. This is the place that we can make a difference most in this city. We're three blocks from the governor's mansion, four blocks from the Capitol. We are right in the heart of downtown Albany. This is right where the lighthouse of rebuilding the city needs to be. Impact, the other aspect of rebuilding the city, is focusing on junior high students. The greatest time of violence is between the hours of 5 and 9 o'clock at night. 
So that's what we're gearing towards, keeping the kids in a positive environment, off the streets, away from getting in trouble, giving them an opportunity to, to be in a place where they belong. My name is Nishe Williams, and I'm currently the house manager at Hope for Women. Growing up, I was already labeled as um, a statistic. In middle school and high school, my teachers told me I was gonna end up just like my mother on crack or I was gonna become pregnant. And, you know, to be honest, I was definitely headed down that road. I didn't know what structure was. I didn't know what true love meant. I didn't know what it looked like until I came to Hope for Women. We have to do more, and rebuilding the city answers that call. If we don't stand in the gap, if there hasn't been such a time as this for us to rise up and meet the need, then another organization may come in that may not be faith-based. And I would rather declare the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to see young people transformed by the power of Jesus, to see them given a, an eternal hope as well as a practical future here. If we don't answer the call, we're not the only solution. We're just a Christ-centered solution of the kingdom of God working together in power and authority. Wow, what a great story and a great vision, Keith. I uh, just want to thank you for spending time with us today, but especially I want to thank you for embracing the partnership between our organizations, for the opportunity for Grace Fellowship to come and uh, work alongside you and be a part of what God is doing through New Hope Ministries right here in the city of Albany. Thank you very much. God is so good. I just want to thank everyone here at Grace Fellowship. Over the last seven years, from pastoral staff uh, to people coming in the church, you've stood with us, you've stood in the gap, helping us in so many ways, serving children food, coats for kids, serving in the office, financially with us every year. New Hope is a kingdom ministry, and we value our friendship, we value the ministry and the partnership that we had together. So I just want to thank everybody here. Thank you all for what you're doing in grace and action, and may the Lord bless you as you move forward in Christ. Awesome. Good deal. Now, next weekend, we're going to have kind of a wrap-up celebration of Grace in Action, the food drive. We're going to show some video and so on of, of some of the exciting things that God has done in these weeks together. But let me just say that, again, this weekend, Friday and Saturday, March 13 and 14, 259 people from Grace went with a great attitude, filled with the Spirit, flexible, and God used you to make a positive difference. And so of those 700 serving opportunities that we had, the actual show-ups, people actually going and serving, 667 went and served and made a difference for the glory of God. Praise God for that. That's awesome. Third, if you really want to get freed up and get well, I would ask that you determine you want to be liberated, not just forgiven. C.S. Lewis said, some people pray, Lord, help me to overcome this sin, but not yet. In John 5, Jesus talked to a man who had been ill for 38 years, and he asked what seems to be a strange question. He said, do you want to get well? The longer I go in ministry, the more I realize how brilliant and insightful Jesus' question was. Some people want forgiveness, but they're not yet ready to truly get well and be liberated. 
you have to ask yourself honestly, am I ready? Am I ready to truly get well? Because if you try to help someone who doesn't, really doesn't want freedom yet, they don't want liberation yet, they will balk at every legitimate plan you offer. They'll find a way to foil it and frustrate it because they're not yet determined to get well. D, be accountable to another believer. Now that takes a lot of humility, but it is proof of your desire. The Bible instructs us, therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. You see, it takes denial and secrecy to keep our addictions going. But confession and openness requires courage and humility. So I would ask you to select one or two Christians that are mature, that you can really trust, and say, look, I'm struggling here with something, and I'm asking you to be a sort of prayer partner for me and keep me accountable as I move toward freedom from this. Two are truly better than one, folks, when it comes to that. Next, I would suggest you be willing to pray and fast for victory. Joel 2 says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. You know, when you go without food for a day or two, as you pray and seek God, it demonstrates a level of seriousness both to God and to yourself. Next, as much as possible, remove the source of temptation. One guy was asked how he quit smoking. He said, I wet all of my matches. Pretty practical. Jesus made this incredible statement in Matthew 18. He said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Say, whoa, that's pretty intense. What's Jesus saying there? Jesus is using what we call a hyperbole, it's an intentional sort of exaggeration to make a very important point. Please understand, Jesus doesn't want you to maim yourself. But his point is, the point of that hyperbole is, do what it takes. That may need, mean you need to empty the contents of that cabinet. Pour it out. It may mean you need to cancel that subscription. It may mean you need to throw some numbers away. Cancel the movie channels. Tell your doctor not to renew that prescription. Do what it takes. Next, anticipate opposition from some of your former friends. Verse 37 reads, then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Now, isn't that surprising? You'd think they'd be delighted. 
this man who'd been terrorizing everyone was now calm and peaceful. But isn't it strange how the world gets all up in arms when the truth of Christ comes in? They don't want Christ around many times. Don't want to hear it. It threatens their lifestyle and the, their economy. People intuitively know that when Jesus comes in, some pigs are going to have to go. When Jesus comes in, some pigs are going to have to go. And so people can be really upset. It's like that old country song says, you ain't much fun since I've quit drinking. You know, these country songs have deep theology in them. It kind of cuts both ways. And finally today, I would suggest that you look for some opportunity to serve others. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Not long after he found sobriety, Bill Wilson, who's known in AA lore as Bill W, realized he was getting really weak and he was about to get drunk again. So he went and found someone who was also um, addicted to alcohol, Dr. Bob. And he helped Dr. Bob. He told his story to him. And by the way, they became the co-founders of AA. But Bill Wilson understood that the main reason for his telling Dr. Bob his story wasn't because he was strong and Dr. Bob was weak. No, he went to try to help Dr. Bob because he realized he was weak. And in serving and helping Dr. Bob, he received strength. We're not strong, folks. We're weak. But in our weakness, Jesus can make us strong. A father watched through the window as his little son kept trying to lift a fairly large rock out of his sandbox, but he grunted and groaned. He couldn't get that big rock up over the edge of the sandbox. His father came out and said, son, can you not get the rock? And he said, no, dad. He said, have you used all your strength? He said, yes, I have, dad. He said, not really. You haven't asked me yet. And together, together, they lifted the rock out. You cannot conquer your own sinful behavior that binds you. But there is a heavenly father who desires to help you with that. And he is waiting to help you if you'll just ask him to do so and give him complete control. And then you can say with confidence, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Father, thank you for your liberating power this day. Thank you that through you, we can be set free from hurts, habits, and hang-ups that have bound us, from addictions that have their claws deep. Thank you that you're in the freedom business. And Lord, I pray today for those who are deeply struggling, and the struggle is real. I pray, oh God, that by your grace you would liberate and set captives free. Bring forgiveness and peace and wholeness and calm 
and productivity just like you brought to this desperate man. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.